Hello and uh, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, uh, as always, I'm your host, Ian Lewins, one of the paediatric emergency medicine consultants in Derby. Um, and I'm really pleased to be joined today uh, by somebody whose uh, name and voice and face will be very familiar to, to people in, across the UK. Um, and that's Dr. Ellie Cannon, who's a GP based in London, working for the NHS, uh, but also a columnist for the Mail on Sunday uh, and broadcaster that, that's appeared on TV quite a lot, particularly on sort of Sky News over the last few months. Uh, good morning, Ellie, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Ian. How are you? Very well, thank you. And uh, so we really appreciate your time for coming on today. Um, there's a few things we sort of wanted to chat about. Um, I guess we're now sort of three months since the start of lockdown. In, mm. in From a primary care perspective, how have you guys found <laughs> the last few months working-wise? Well, probably like yourself, um, it's been the biggest change to my working life since I qualified 15 or so years ago. Um, Obviously, we went through a very sudden change like everybody did in that last couple of weeks in March where we went from seeing people just as we always had done to shutting the door. So (laughs) shutting the door to people walking in, making appointments shutting the door to people picking up prescriptions and of course shutting the door to anybody coming in for a face-to-face appointment or needing emergency help so we went from I suppose physically working in a very busily bustling place um, like any hospital or primary care setting to working very quietly and very remotely and it felt felt incredibly different certainly for the first two to four weeks of the pandemic, um, those terrible weeks that we all sort of suffered in in April, um, it was very quiet. It was very, very quiet in primary care. Where I was working, there was a hot hub for COVID cases, which meant that all potential COVID cases were directed via 111 Mm. to the hub. And so we were working and available um, and accessible for our patients. But as you'll know from pediatrics, people people were not accessing care. So there were there were many hours uh, sitting in general practice, including I worked on the bank holidays um, in May on the bank holiday Mondays um, and Easter Easter Monday. Um, and there, there was there was very very little to do. And I think that's quite hard in a way because there was a lot of guilt associated with that, particularly when you're watching the news, when you're talking to hospital colleagues who were, I mean, beyond flat out, who were literally getting ill at the coalface. And and for some of us in primary care, we felt, I think we felt sort of quite impotent and quite uh, quite under underutilised. Mm. And... Uh... In terms, of, I mean, we saw you know almost a just over a fifty percent reduction in attendances in the emergency department. Um, mm. Is that sort of similar numbers? Do you think in primary care? Oh, absolutely. And um, I mean, anecdotally, the people we spoke to who had delayed, um, who had delayed presenting, were was, was terribly worrying. I, I spoke to people who. Um, really should have had um, two-week rule uh, target referrals um, six or seven weeks earlier than they actually presented but people verbalized that they were 
they thought we weren't open, they were afraid to come in, they were afraid, didn't know how to access us. Um, so absolutely, there was an enormous drop in the people who we were, in the people who were trying to access our help. Um, we did do some outreach, so we did try and speak to our most vulnerable patients, our frail um, elderly patients, our patients who were shielding, um, but it, it was hard to know who needed us, really. Yeah, I, I was going to say, in, in terms of those people that where you would normally offer home visits, uh, potentially, I yeah. mean, how, how have you guys kind of tried to manage that? Um, well, we did have we did have protocols for home visits early on. Um, certainly at the beginning of April, I was still doing home visits and we had PPE and we came up with a practice protocol of how we would see people. And we needed to do that early on because we needed to um, get oxygen levels on patients when we spoke to them on the phone. Um, there was a lot of talk early on in general practice about how we could assess breathlessness on the phone. Um, and it proved very difficult. There were some potential tools, but actually none of them proved to be sensitive or specific enough. And so, you know, we did have to go to see patients both with COVID and not with COVID and particularly to, to test oxygen levels. So we went, we went with PPE. I consulted with some patients in their garden on their front drive. Um, I admitted a patient to hospital from her front drive. Um <laughs> And uh, we we may do, I would imagine probably probably like hospital colleagues may do. Then what happened was primary care sort of got itself pretty well organised where I work and the COVID hub, which was one GP surgery, a hot hub seeing patients, sorted itself out and they also developed very quickly a home visiting service. So we were able to um, basically have them see any of our potential covid patients yeah one of the things that we sort of had to do was because the government message was you know stay at home was was very very clear mm. and we you know we were really worried that that as you say kids were potentially presenting late and people were staying at home and so we had to go out and sort of say look we are still open and i, I noticed on twitter certainly that's something that you were very prominent at saying look primary care is still open Yes, that's right. We did. We almost had to ask our patients to come in. Um, certainly in terms of kids, I think very early on, um, a paediatric colleague of mine um, showed me, I think it was this significant reporting for paediatrics in London uh, in April and the sort of misdiagnoses and the late presentations. And it was incredibly frightening um, to see that patients had either been made to feel that they should stay at home um, or they were scared to go to hospital. They were scared to go to what they thought was a sort of epicenter, epicenter of the infection. Um, and I think that's borne out as well for adults, but probably less so. Um, there were delays in terms of, certainly delays in terms of cancer referrals, delays in people presenting. Um, but obviously with children, it was just that much more frank. And also because of this crossover of COVID with the temperature and the cough, obviously yeah. mimicking all of all of your paediatric sepsis emergencies as well that do need to be seen. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one of the interesting things is, uh, whilst we've seen a quite a significant reduction in numbers, we saw a, a huge increase in burns. Um, so all the kids who are suddenly at home are pulling cups of tea onto themselves and mm. touching And again, it's one of the sort of health promotion things that we've had to put out and say, look, be vigilant. I mean, are there any things that you guys have seen an increase in during this period? Um, I was thinking things like mental health problems at all. Mm. Well, the mental health, um, the mental health side of things is very interesting because um, therapy and the IAPT services and CAMS as well um, remained working, but remotely with video consultation and on the phone. So, you know, that was that was excellent. That wasn't such a big shift for patients. We were able to carry on speaking to patients. Obviously, those patients don't need examining. So whilst it's not as therapeutic to speak to somebody on the phone or by video consultation, we were we were able we were able to carry on some sort of at least brief intervention or therapy with those people. For some mental health patients, um, obviously it was it's incredibly difficult, and we certainly have seen new diagnoses, no doubt about it, mm. new anxiety, new depression, um, a lot of fear, of course, associated with the pandemic. Um, and I think time is going to tell because, of course, in terms of terms of our kids and younger people, the effects are going to be longer lasting from not having been in school or in college or university in terms of in terms of how that will affect their mental health and their socializing yeah and going forward then in primary care do you you think that the changes that people have had to adapt to over these three months actually are going to be long lasting and and there are some useful things that have come out of it in terms of you know, not having to do quite so many face-to-face consultations and thinking, actually, is it more convenient? Is it better for the patients to do more phone or video consultations? Mm. Absolutely. I mean, this has been one of the good news stories that has come out of this pandemic, Um, much like the huge effort that we saw to build the Nightingale hospitals where there is need the NHS and the public sector and government can really come together very quickly and perform miracles. And in primary care, we have struggled and waited for years for improved technology um, and access to remote consultation, to video consultations. And within two weeks of the pandemic, that had all been implemented across more than 90%, I think, of surgeries across the UK, which is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, Earlier this year, I thought it was groundbreaking that I was able to text my patients, whereas now I do sort of consultations by video that is all secure and linked into their GP notes. So we we had a huge technological revolution. From what I understand, um, the software was implemented over one weekend within 48 hours. Everything just moved at lightning speed after sort of five years of... (laughs) plodding on not getting anywhere so so that was phenomenal and that hopefully is something that will change access to getting a GP appointment has also totally changed we have moved onto a system again across the majority of GP surgeries whereby you do not 
try desperately to get through on the phone at mm. whatever time it is or queue outside the door as we've often seen on the front page of newspapers now all gp surgeries are offering appointments to be made online by something called e-consultation or something equivalent and that means that patients can request exactly what they want um, and it's a triage system so that there's there's definitely some improvements and as you say what that will mean going forward is that the people who do just need a sick note or just need something very quick or something very transactional they don't have to come in they don't have to leave work um mum and dad can have that conversation from their work you know they can if they're looking after their child at home they can stay at home with the child if they if they need to young people who can't get the time off work can do their appointments from work so there's lots of you know that there's there's really sort of fabulous technological changes that can be done um i spoke to a mum yesterday um from clinic and i said to her could we change to a uh video consultation because she wanted to show me um a birthmark on her baby's bottom and she was in, she had just parked in the car park to go to the playground and she sat in her car and she showed me the birthmark and I had a good look at it. And that was that, nice yeah. and easy. No appointment made later, all done and dusted. Obviously, of course, we have to see patients face to face in a lot of instances, but for a lot of things, it's it's been really been revolutionary and I hope that is something that we carry on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's sort of reset our mindset of thinking, do we really need to bring people into hospital to see them? Because mm. that's very much for our convenience rather than the, the patient or parent's convenience. And actually, it may be far easier for them to, to be seen at home. Um, mm. Moving on, I just wanted to talk about masks um, or face coverings, because it was really noticeable that that right from the start, this was something that, that you in particular were very sort of keen on, very prominent on. Um, and obviously the, the advice and guidance has changed over time. And, and mm. you know, we're now wearing masks all the time. But, but you were there right from the start sort of promoting masks. Why was that? Why did that sort of strike you? Um, well, I actually, I, I have to be honest about that. Right at the outset, I felt very, very... Um, obligated to stick with government guidance on anything and I felt that it was very important both as a doctor and as a parent but also somebody with with a bit of a media profile that really there was no point in sort of dissent or going against the advice and actually we'd all be better sort of being foot soldiers and sort of agreeing and agreeing with the social distancing and the hand washing and this and that we all just had to you know sort of buckle buckle down and get on with it and i still i still do do believe that to an extent we just have to get on with it there may have been mistakes but now day by day we have to we have to sort of get on and be foot soldiers like everybody else um, and the thing with the masks, actually, it's interesting because, as I'm sure you can imagine, sometimes I get a bit of stick for writing a column in a, I suppose, a tabloid newspaper in mainstream media, particularly Daily Mail brand, although it's Mail on Sunday. And actually, it was my editor at the Mail on Sunday, my health editor, who 
very early on in mid-April had seen advice from the CDC in America and had come across the Masks for All campaign and particularly Trish Greenhow, who you'll know is a very sort of eminent academic GP, very sort of, um, you know, invented basically evidence-based medicine. He was talking about masks and he wanted me to write about masks. And actually, because I had been um, prepped, um, you know, by the Department of Health, like everybody else, that masks were PPE and shouldn't be used and actually could cause more harm than good. I, I was really quite nervous about doing it, but I I spoke to Trish, I read a lot about it, and I, and I realised, actually, surely we just have nothing to lose. And in terms of the you know, precautionary principle, which we've applied in a lot of situations in this pandemic. Um, there really, it really felt to me like something that made a lot of sense. I felt that there was obviously a problem with PPE. There was obviously an issue with face masks for clinical need. And we had to get across that they had to be cloth face coverings, homemade, nothing to do with PPE. We had to get across the issue that this was source control, so very much to protect the people around you, not to protect yourself. Um, And I feel that coming out of this pandemic, having any form of success, which is such a misnomer, isn't it, in this this current climate, but having any form of success um, really is going to have to come from a lot of different measures. It's not just going to come from social distancing or hand washing or a vaccination or dexamethasone. It's going to be a whole load of factors altogether, as we know is often the case in medicine and in health. So I just I just feel very strongly that face masks is something that we can all do to to protect each other, like vaccinating. You know, the same reason I, I vaccinate my kids. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> um, notice sort of you often comment on Twitter when you're on the tube the sort of proportion of people mm. wearing or not wearing masks. I mean, I don't know. Is is this something that that is sort of so alien to to people in the UK of wearing masks, whereas it may be more common in other countries, um, mm. so and South Korea, where it, you know that the, the people seem to wear masks a lot more. <laughs> Do you think this is something that we will sort of get used to or I don't know I don't know and I almost I almost think it doesn't matter because I think that if enough of us do it that will be okay and so I feel that I'm wearing it and there's enough people around and there's you know even if 50% of us are wearing it you know it'd be amazing if 75% were but even if half of us were wearing masks the amount of transmission from pre pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic people would drop which the data backs up I think it is alien but we've lived the most alien few months of our life Um, if you just look at the language and the way we the way we live our lives in the last few months and people staying at home and the things we've all got used to have been so incredibly alien Um, and it's such a simple thing and you know I have um two teenagers and they've got sort of quite funky face masks so I notice on these terrible websites that my uh, teenage daughter likes to shop on they're all selling 
you know, trendy face masks for them. So I think it could be something that younger people own. I thought it was amazing at the Black Lives Matters protests that majority of youngsters mm. that we saw were wearing masks. They were really owning it, either as a bandana or as a sort of traditional mask, which I thought was fantastic. Um, I don't know if we'll get used to it. I think we've I think we've got used to a lot worse over the last few months. Yeah, uh, and of course, the next step with face masks potentially is thinking about the, the kind of clear face masks. So for those people who've got hearing difficulties, mm. lip reading is really important. Actually, you know that that's kind of an important step forward as well. Oh, it really is. My bestest and oldest friend from school um, is hearing impaired and only lip reads, and has found the pandemic. She lives in a country where face coverings are compulsory and she has found the uh, pandemic incredibly incredibly difficult for that reason and in the same way that we have to make sure we are not um, discriminating against against anybody in our normal lives we have to of course make sure of that with, with face coverings but I've seen some good transparent face coverings yeah. actually so far I've seen some really good ones good um finally moving on um this sounds dreadful it sounds like a stalk you on twitter but but one of the other things that... isn't that what twitter's for i think i think we put ourselves there to be stalked don't we i think <laughs> you're sort of talking about being involved in vaccine research um for, for, for covid um mm. how did you get involved in that was it just simply you know putting your hand up and saying yes please or how did that come about Yes, I mean, that's exactly what happened. I put my hand up and said, and said, yes, please. I think that probably comes from what I started off talking about, that I think certainly there was a bit of guilt in general practice. I certainly felt that and a feeling of a bit of impotence. Um, I've got a very close friend who lives three doors down from me, who's a renal consultant in one of the big London teaching hospitals. And her experience you know, of COVID was so far removed from mine. And, and you know, I felt quite guilty about that, that we were we were almost just sitting there having not an easy ride because I felt just as anxious and scared as everybody else. But we were we were certainly not having much of a workload. And I think I think I do sort of always feel this huge desire to do something useful and um just be a part of something and yeah I saw the email I mean I think it was sent to everybody in my CCG in London um, Oxford I've got all these centres around the country of mm. course for the vaccine trial um, and I've never signed up for a medical trial before actually but I just felt you know something worth doing I trust vaccinations I trust the science behind it from from the Oxford Vaccine Group, obviously have got, you know, um, very good reputation. So I just, I felt, I thought it was, I thought it'd be a interesting thing for me to do personally, and I thought it was worth doing. Yeah. So what's it involved so far? What have you had to do? 
So, um, well, the first thing it involved was going on the underground because I hadn't been on public transport before then. So that was that was eye opening. So it starts. You start off with an online. You start off with an online questionnaire. Very simple, straightforward health criteria. Obviously, then I had about an hour long appointment at the hospital. Um, including of all you could imagine, of course, all sort of past medical history and all yeah. of that sort of stuff. Um, standard things, BMI, blood pressure, urine, all of those sort of things. I had to have an antibody test because, okay. of course, they want you to not have antibodies. So you can only start the trial if you don't have antibodies. Um, so I, I assumed I wouldn't have because I haven't had any uh, symptoms of COVID and my family haven't been ill so I assumed that I that would be the case and it was so once so I had all of those checks done at the first appointment and was found to be eligible you have to commit um, so I'm a blood donor and you have to commit not to give blood for a year and you also if you're a woman you have to commit to using contraception not getting pregnant um and all questions of course about your data and your dna and your cells so we went through all this sort of all of that and then went back a week later once the antibody result had come and had an, went through all the checks again actually and then you're given the vaccination which just felt like any old vaccination i've had before just in the upper arm um and now I have to do swabs every week right. so I don't know how long for at the moment I know I definitely have to do them for the next two months right. so every Friday I go through the unpleasant experience of doing the COVID throat and nasal swab on myself um but again I thought to myself you know what that's no bad thing bit of surveillance on myself uh, I thought, why not? Um, so I do that. I think I go back for blood tests as well at some point. But the commitment in terms of going to the hospital is very minimal. I go back again in one month and then at six months, I think. Right. So. Um, and at this stage, have you sort of been given a, a, an end point or when we're going to stop swabbing or is it sort of ongoing for the time being? Um, well, at the moment, I've been told I'm swabbing for the first couple of months, um, and I'm not sure how much after that. And of course, um, it's a blind trial, and I don't know if I've had the uh, COVID vaccine or the control, which is the men ACWY vaccine. Um, so I don't know which one I've had. It's, so the whole trial is one year. Right. And at the end of the year, um, I suppose I'll be told if I have antibodies. I know that they said that um, if you're on the trial and it proves to be successful and you've actually had the control, not the actual vaccine, you would get the vaccine at the end of the trial if right. you wanted it. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to be a part of it. Um, I thought, well, there's no harm to have antibody tests and surveillance swabs. So there is some personal benefit there um and it's uh it's it is good to feel to feel a part of it they particularly want healthcare professionals because certainly right now with our current thankfully low levels of community transmission it's it's people like us of course who are more likely to come into contact with covid than anybody else 
so um they they want healthcare professionals my my healthcare assistant in my gp surgery and i have both signed up for it so that's good we we compare self-swabbing yeah. stories <laughs> and if you say you were to become um unwell and develop covid-like symptoms does that alter your your sort of passage through the trial or, or is it just sort of accepted as a part of the standard protocol so I think it's just part of it so if that happens you have to treat yourself just as you would normally with the isolation and ordering a government um, self self test kit and then of course you have to let them know that you're unwell and then I think they do choose to see you if you are if you are confirmed as having as having covid i think they have certain protocols of course depending how unwell you are and if you've had a positive swab um so i think that yeah they they, they are of course they need to know if you if you get covid um so yeah it's uh you know listen it, it's very interesting i was really impressed when i went there and everything was very well explained and I was given the option so many times of sort of not going ahead with it um but it's it's it certainly certainly feels worthwhile I don't feel that a vaccination is going to be the end of the pandemic or the end of lockdown I think probably like all doctors we're a bit more pragmatic than that and we realize it's going to be one factor of many factors if at all <laughs> yeah yeah um and for sort of anybody listening to this as far as you know is is this st- are they still looking to recruit people to the trial yes they are absolutely so you can just search online for oxford vaccine trial they're still recruiting because they need um 10,000 in this current phase so they are definitely still recruiting on the oxford vaccine trial also, um, the Imperial trial has started in the last couple of weeks and on their vaccination, which is slightly different, um, and they are about to start recruiting. Um, so also you can Google that as well, the Imperial vaccine trial. They are, they are almost ready to recruit. Right. So, and I think that's, you know, that's something that all healthcare professionals really should strongly consider because you know it's as you say it, it may not be the the key out of this but it may well pay, play a key part in in going forward yes it may well exactly and i would imagine if it is something that's successful presumably it will become like the seasonal flu vaccination which we're all recommended to have um because of the healthcare settings being such hubs of these infections so it's probably something if it's successful we'll all end up having anyway yeah brilliant uh, well ellie thank you so much for your time that's, that's been really interesting to get a sort of a primary care perspective um so thank you so much for joining us today oh thank you for having me all right